We are going to read from Matthew chapter 1, so I hope you brought a Bible. We're going to go old school today and read either hard copies or digital copies, whatever you've got. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read beginning in 18, and we'll finish the chapter. The reason for this reading today is that today is the fourth Sunday of Advent. This is the gospel reading of the fourth Sunday of Advent, and this is where we examine the character Joseph. If you'll recall, last year uh, at this meeting in December, we did a a Joseph sermon. In fact, for those who watch or listen and want to go back to that, and I would recommend it, um, it was a sermon called Joseph the Dreamer 2.0. I took the story of Joseph from the Old Testament, who is a dreamer, has his famous dreams. He shares them with his dad and his brothers. It, It causes him to be sold into slavery, ultimately. God takes a bad situation and makes it good, which if the Father didn't do that, most of us would be in trouble because we create a lot of bad situations. And so grace creates opportunity. Joseph messes it up. The Father saves him. Joseph 2.0 was a man, was a sermon about a man who also has a dream. Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, and he succeeds where the first Joseph fails. And he, um, in a lot of different ways, I'm not going to re-preach that. Um, However, I have been thinking a lot about that message as I've prepared my heart for this one today. And, and one of the lapovers is that that Joseph was a dreamer uh, and dreamers have to have a certain ear. And Joseph had an ear and then knowing what to do with it. And I'm reminded of something we've done in between those, which is where we talked about the seven churches and that reality that he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. That's a Jesus statement. So we're, we, we, have, we either have the ear to hear or we don't have the ear to hear. That doesn't mean we're deaf. It means we're either hearing and doing or we're hearing and ignoring. All of us. We're either hearing and doing or we're hearing and ignoring. And so my hope is that we are hearing and doing. I know the reality is, is that sometimes we are hearing and ignoring, and that's what we want to work past today a little bit. I'm going to title this silent obedience. Um, before I do, before I read, I, I had this thought that, that, that come to me this afternoon in reading. And, and I just wanted to share with you because here we are at the end of the year and at the end of the year, you're going to go into new years. And when you get into new years, you're going to have messages, sermons, thoughts, teachings in churches and online and trusted authors or whatever about, um, Prophecy for the new year. (laughs) What's God going to do in America? What's God going to do in the church? What's God going to do in your life? Um, I'm not prepared to give you a prophecy of the new year today. I'm not here to tell you what God's going to do in America, what God's going to do in the church, what God's going to do in your life. I think God's going to do in many respects what we allow him to mold and shape in us and no more because God doesn't just smash down our will to do or to be. And so we become formed. We don't just get pushed like chess pieces. So part of it's spiritual formation. Um, However, I do know the nature of my brethren, ministers, brothers and sisters, guys who, men and women who make their jobs and careers out of telling other people what God is saying. So I know what's coming, even though I don't plan on participating in it. What's coming is a bunch of prophecies about the need for revival and renewal and how God is about to do this if we'll do this. And if we don't do this, God's going to do that. And we're about to pit the church against God. And we're about to pit the American church against the rest of the church. 
and we're about to pitch the church against America and vice versa. Um, and one of the things that we're going to say is that we are going to need a revival. We're going to need a renewal. And here's what we have to do to make it happen. And here's what we have to do to make it happen. And here's I want to warn you. All of it is code language for let's return to the law. Because there is no such thing as a message of revival that does not take people back to works. Because the Holy Spirit never stops doing what He's doing. When they're yelling at you about revival, it's not the Holy Spirit they're upset with. It's you. What they want you to do is you do something. And you do something is going to have to be quantifiable. And so here's going to come a list. Here's the stuff we need to do. Here's the stuff we need to stop doing. And if you really want them to, they'll gladly start to detail that list. Stop watching this, going there, wearing this, saying this, drinking this, doing that, being that. Start doing this and this and this. And the don'ts will be lists of things that are touch not, taste not, handle not. And the do's will be lists of things that build the church physically. They don't build the church spiritually. They'll build ministries They'll build bottom lines, they'll build structures, they'll build edifices, they'll build stuff. I'm just warning you, you didn't need the warning, but you've got it. And for all who watch and who listen, you're going to be bombarded with, maybe this is the year we're supposed to do. Relax. The Holy Spirit is going to be the same Holy Spirit in you when the calendar flips as He was before the calendar flipped. We act like God has this thing that happens in the heavens when our sun passes around our earth passes around the sun for the 365th day it's like god goes okay new things are going to happen because they flip the calendar over to january it's the same holy spirit he's still calling out to you to understand your identity and know you are forgiven and receive the grace and mercy of god and where you get your hands in the mix we mix it up and we, where we mix it up, we inevitably mess it up. So just receive that. That's my Christmas gift to you is a little prescient warning a week or two ahead of when it starts to happen. Here comes all the revival sermons. Just relax. You already have the Holy Spirit who is at work in you. All right? That leads us to our reading. Gospel reading from Matthew chapter 1. Verse number 18. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. To take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call, they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. There's a couple of fascinating points to, to today's reading that I don't emphasize much, I don't think get emphasized much, and 
I, I want to I work Joseph's story from two other angles, because believe it or not, there are actually three moments Joseph's involved in the story. He doesn't get a lot of playing time, but there are, and so we're going to go into them. But a couple of fascinating points to me is that Joseph is righteous, hadn't done, we don't know how he's righteous. He's righteous, and he gets to name the child Jesus. But the thing that I've missed, and this is where I really want to emphasize today, and I told you we're talking about silent obedience. The reason I say silent obedience is because the thing I've missed in all these years of reading the Joseph story is that Joseph never says a word. We do not hear Joseph ever speak in the entire nativity story. We do not hear Joseph speak on the way to Egypt. We do not hear Joseph speak on the way back from Egypt. Joseph is actually on the scene for several years and never says a word. We have Mary speaking. We have Mary speaking multiple times. We don't have Joseph speaking at all. The fact that Joseph doesn't speak and the fact that Joseph vanishes about midway through the Jesus narrative, probably because he dies, is cause enough for most people to not talk much about Joseph. If we're going to talk about Jesus' as father, we go all the way up to his heavenly father. We don't bother with his earthly father because, frankly, his earthly father was adoptive at best. He didn't biologically birth Jesus, and so therefore he didn't really have much to do with it. How much could Jesus have picked up from Joseph? Well, that got me wrestling this week because here's reality. If you live with someone and you live with them long enough, you pick up things about them and you take them into your own character even though you don't share blood with them. No DNA. And yet, you start to talk like them. You start to prefer them. Not every person and not every trait and not every characteristic. But if you're around someone long enough, you pick up their features. You pick up their habits. Hopefully you pick up their good and you avoid their bad. We all do it and we all see it. We see it in our own kids, but we also can see it if you work with someone long enough. You can see it if you live in the house with someone or live in the same apartment building with someone or you go to church with someone. If you spend lots of time around someone where you open your heart just a little bit around them, church is a great place for that because people start to expose their emotions. They start to expose their past. They start to work through stuff, a little bit of spiritual therapy. And then when that happens, your heart starts, starts to connect with people. And that's why we get closer sometimes to church and church people, even in our own family, because we don't often share with family what we share with brothers and sisters in Christ, because it's difficult. It's too much shared history. We start to pick those things up. And so I, I just, I want to present the idea today that quite possibly the Jesus you see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John He's most definitely influenced by his mother and the story of his nativity, and he's most definitely listening to his heavenly father. That which I hear my father say, Jesus says, I say. What I see my dad do, I do. We know that's a fact if we trust Jesus. But maybe the Jesus that we see is influenced by the man that raised him, Joseph, in more ways than we could possibly understand. And here's what I mean. I, I don't think that Jesus as head of his 12 disciples or his hundreds of disciples saw himself as a prophet or a preacher. He prophesied, he preached. But I don't think it's how he saw himself because when given the opportunity to show his group what he thought of himself, in John 13, he stands up. The scripture says he knowing who he was, knowing that all things had been given into his hand, he stands up. And this is a dramatic pause in John 13. This is the moment where you're supposed to go take your mantle of kingship. If you know who you are and you know that all things have been given unto you and you stand up, 
it's time to stand your ground. And instead, he gets down on his knees in front of his disciples. He puts an apron around his waist and he washes his disciples' feet. The great melodramatic moment of the New Testament where the king stands up and then kneels down. And so this tells me that in so many ways, Jesus, who could take his position as the ultimate prophet, the ultimate preacher, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, really sees himself as a provider and a protector first. So the great calling to Jesus is not being a great preacher. It's being a great provider. It's why I think Jesus' ministry actually pairs down instead of builds up. Whenever the focus becomes centric, oftentimes we try to build bigger followings. Sort of the American way is to build the biggest possible following that you can. Um, And that's kind of filtered over into the church. But you watch Jesus, his audience actually trims down. It goes from large groups of people to smaller groups of people to smaller groups of people to 12 and just a few at the cross. And, and why is that? Well, we could say a thousand reasons why and the things that he says and the things that he does, but maybe in reality, as Jesus realizes something it takes most of us our entire lives to learn, is that it's far easier to shepherd the smaller group to provide for and to protect what's yours than to try to provide for and protect what's broad. It's easy to talk about protecting what's broad. It's hard to protect what's small. I know that seems opposite. Like, for instance, a lot of people want to change the world that don't change the sheets on their own bed. You know what I mean? And like they're super passionate about feeding the hungry and housing the homeless and creating world peace. And they don't get along with their next door neighbor. And they don't feed the guy at work that doesn't have food. And they don't house anyone but themselves and they barely pull that off. My point is, it's easy to, to be broad. It's really easy because all you gotta do is talk a lot, have a big platform and, and smile right and take good selfies. It's difficult to care for that which is on the inside. Jesus actually shows us more about being a good pastor, a good provider, a good protector by having the smaller group than the larger because he's going to go to the cross and spread his arms out and die for the whole wide world. But the dying for the whole wide world is the easy part. Kneeling down in front of two or three people and washing their feet is the hard part. So, well, how, how's it easy to die? Well, you're going to do it someday. Whether you, whether you think it's hard or easy, you're going to do that. But you're not necessarily going to get down on your knees and wash anyone's feet. So you're going to die whether you like it or not, but you're only going to wash feet when you decide to. So which one's harder, dying or humbling yourself and taking care of something that matters? This is why we all say, well, you know what'll make her grow up? What'll make that couple grow up? What'll make that guy grow up? Have a kid. Why do we say that? Because in reality, the moment that something matters enough to have to take care of, the rest of the world gets pushed out. And then that thing matters so much that nothing else matters. It matters so much that nothing else matters. And the thing that matters the most in the world is that group right in front of you. So Joseph's great contribution to the story of Jesus is that when the angel speaks to him and says, your wife's pregnant. I know you haven't slept with her. I want you to think about this. This is insanity. This dream is insanity. All right. Let's just go with it for a moment. Hello, Joseph. Your wife is pregnant. You're... Scratch that. Your fiance is pregnant. You haven't slept with her, but don't worry. Neither has anyone else. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know if you understand how biology works. I don't think Joseph would, would know the word biology, but even he has a right to go, okay, I mean, I was born during the day, but it wasn't yesterday, and so you're going to have to do a lot more than that. But no. Silence in the face of this angel who says, your wife's going to bear a son. Don't freak out. 
He's the one. And then the angel quotes the book of Isaiah, which was a passage that was actually fulfilled in the Old Testament that the woman shall conceive and bring forth a son. He shall be Emmanuel. That, that baby was Hezekiah in the Old Testament. A wo- Did you know that in the Hebrew? A woman shall conceive and bring forth a son. When the Greek scholars translated the Old Testament into the Septuagint, a couple hundred years before Christ, they changed the word woman and made it the Greek word virgin. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. They took a previously fulfilled verse and made it unfulfilled. And Gabriel steps into Joseph's dream and grabs the Septuagint, not the Hebrew. He grabs the Septuagint version and he drops it in front of Joseph and he goes, your wife's the virgin, your fiance's the virgin that shall conceive. Emmanuel means God with us. God is going to be with you. You shall name him Jesus, Yeshua. You shall call him Savior. He's going to be the anointed one of Israel. This is the one that you've been waiting on. And Joseph doesn't say, cool, I don't believe you. Tell me more. There's nothing. He wakes up. He accepts it. He moves on. We have every reason to believe if you take the Matthew story and the Luke story that are happening side by side. Mary has heard from the angel. Remember, Gabriel comes to Mary and Luke and says, highly favored among women. You're going to bear a son. You should call his name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. And Mary goes, how's this going to happen? I haven't slept with anyone. And God goes, the Holy Spirit shall overshadow you and you shall conceive a child of the Holy Spirit. And she says, amen, so be it unto me. Right? And before the angel leaves the room, he says, your relative shall also bear a son and he's going to pave the way for your son. And so when Gabriel walks out of the room, Mary gets up and goes to see her relative because she's going to go prove the word. By the way, God is okay with you proving the word. You need confirmation? Go for it. God's not mad. That's not faithless, by the way. Sometimes it's just straight up smart. God spoke to me. I want to make sure it was God. How could I make sure it's God? Go see Elizabeth. If Elizabeth's pregnant, you couldn't have known that. By the way, Elizabeth's old. She's beyond, the Bible says she's beyond childbearing years. So it's going to be a miracle. So Mary hops on the donkey, rides down the road, shows up at Elizabeth's house. And when she gets into Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth is three months pregnant. And Mary goes, hmm, okay, so I'm not crazy. If this is true, then this might be true. And during that time she's gone is Joseph's dream. So when his wife comes back pregnant, (laughs) your wife's been away. Yeah, now you get it. Your wife's been away. Your fiance's been away and she comes back pregnant. What happened while she was away? And that's Joseph's thought process as his wife comes, his fiance comes back pregnant, but he's already heard from God. He's already made a decision. And without saying a word, he obeys the voice and waits it out in a spectacular obedience. We are in a high-pressured society to be opinionated people, to win every argument, to have a position, to take a stand on everything. And I do believe there are times when a stand is necessary. And there are also times when silence is complicit. And you have to decide that you're going to say something because not saying something might mean that you agree with everybody else. And it might be time to step up. And so I don't want to tell you when it's time to say or what, it's, what you should say. Um, I think we have to listen to the Spirit on that. But I do believe that we 
have been a little hoodwinked, a little bit deceived in this hour into thinking that making our voice heard or having something to say is the sign that we have things figured out or the sign that we're intelligent or the sign that we know something. And a lot of times that kind of moves over into ministry or it moves over into obedience where sometimes the best thing that we can do is be silent in the face of opposition or be silent in the face of things we don't completely understand rather than rushing headlong in to try and figure it out. Let me read for you a verse. Go, go to, uh, we're going to come back to Matthew, but go to 1 Thessalonians 4. I want to share with you a verse that has been so important to me in my ministry, um, particularly the last seven or eight years. And that coincides pretty directly with the moves that the Father has made in us to, to position us in different places and in different forms of ministry. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, verse number 11. It's actually the last sentence of verse 10. 10 splits in the middle of the sentence, something that's a pet peeve of mine. But So let's back up one sentence. 1 Thessalonians 4.10, we urge you, beloved, to do so more and more, to aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands as we directed you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. I want you to look one more time at what Paul hopes the Thessalonican Christians will do at the very beginning of verse 11. Live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Some translations say, mind your own business. I actually like that even better. So let's throw that in there. Live quietly, mind your own business, work with your, with your hands as we directed you. If you do this, you would behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. So I do believe that Paul, as a preacher, teacher, shepherd, provider, protector, does care how we live, obviously. He says, listen, how you treat outside people is important course it is. We're representatives of the king. But how do we get there? He goes, aspire to live a quiet life and mind your own business. Two things that are very difficult in today's society. Try to live a quiet life, mind your own business. Try to live. It's impossible to live a quiet life where speak first is your first response to everything. Like something happens, I'm going to have a word. Something happens, I got to have something to say. I got to have a proclamation to make. And I think the reason I felt so compelled to say what I did at the top about you're about to come up on a season where everybody's going to be telling you there's revival needed and there's a renewal that's got to happen in the new year is because <coughs> in ministry, we're about to enter that season where, where no one knows how to be quiet. We all got to have something to say that's powerful, that's banner worthy, that's a headline that gets the year kicked off. And I'm impressed more and more with the great heroes of the Bible that knew when not to talk that the greatest obedience was knowing when to be silent and obey. I don't mean just be silent. I mean be silent and obey. What did God tell me to do? That's what I'm going to do. I don't have to argue about it. I don't have to argue my way through it. I also don't have to understand it. I don't have to have every answer to why I'm doing it. And do you know why a lot of times we want answers? I don't think we want answers for us. I think we want answers for other people. Because if you truly start obeying the Lord, somebody's going to ask you what you're doing. Have you lost your, your way? Because there might be some decisions you have to make in your life that are 
going to be completely off the rails to the people around you. And you're going to be pressured to give everyone an explanation for your obedience. And I don't think most of us would have any problem obeying God if we weren't so scared for how we were going to explain it to people. When they say, are you nuts? You can't do that. We go, Lord, I really need a good reason. I've even said that to the Lord before. Lord, I really need you to give me a good reason to do this. And it's amazing how he never gives me a good reason. Because he doesn't play that game. He goes, I don't need to give you a good reason. I want you to walk in faith into this. Paul, the only reason you want a reason is because you're already thinking ahead that people are going to ask you why you're doing this and you need a couple of good ideas. And sometimes there are not good ideas. Can you imagine Joseph? Now he has the Torah right to completely sever his relationship with Mary. If she turns up pregnant and they're not married, he can accuse her of adultery. He's going to win in the court of public opinion of his day. He does not have to marry her now, and by Torah law, she can be stoned to death. He makes a determination to put her away quietly. Then he hears from the Holy Spirit, she's, she's pregnant with, let's call him what, God, what the angel says to Mary, is son of God. To Jesus, or I'm sorry, to Joseph, he says, you shall call his name Jesus. He's the Emmanuel. He's the one born of the virgin. You can believe this or not believe this. He chooses to believe this. And in believing this, he silently obeys. He doesn't need a reason, although if there's ever anybody that needed an explanation, this is the guy, because everyone's going to come to him and go, hey, I noticed, you're, I noticed you, got, you, you went ahead and knocked her up before the wedding. I mean, this is going to happen. How are you going to get around this? I noticed you guys are going to have a baby. You're not even married yet. This is a scandal. By being complicit, Joseph steps into the scandal with Mary. This is, this is quite an obedience. He steps into it with Mary, because He's part of the scandal now. He doesn't throw her under the bus. He has every legal right to, but he doesn't. I love that not only is he obedient, but that he is silent. And I love that he doesn't need something to tell people. Because what are you going to tell people? Uh, she's pregnant with the baby of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> is that your, that's your line when people go, Hi, I see, so I see uh, Mary's pregnant. Uh, you guys, uh, that's pretty risky in this society. You know, you're not even married. You go, oh, don't worry. It was the Holy Ghost. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I get it now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's, oh, he's the one. We get it. We get it. You know that doesn't happen. And the fact that Joseph steps into that to me is, is, is quite remarkable. I want to show you something else. I, I think um, we have greater evidence for silent Joe. Um, I'm calling Joseph Joe now. <laughs> I snuck that in there all of a sudden. We have great evidence for Silent Joe more than just this one story. You know, if you take the old Hebrew idea that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything be established. And so if you want to establish some sort of, the, some sort of theology, it's better to have three verses than two. And it's, better, it's way better than having one. One's better than none. But I've seen one verse get more people into trouble than three verses get people into. So three times Joseph shows up in the story. Let me show you the second one. Matthew chapter two. Go back to the Go back to that nativity story. This is just following the, the Magi. They've just shown up with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The Magi have moved on. They've tried to steer Herod's wrath away from, from the baby. You know that's part of the story. Look at verse 13. After they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said... Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, 
for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And then in the most unheralded act of faith in the entire Bible, I think, the next verse happens. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt. He didn't even wait for the sun to come up. He wakes up in the middle of the night from this dream, slaps his feet down on the floor, goes and wakes up his wife, and says, let's go. We're not even waiting until the sun comes up. I'm so convinced it's time to leave. We're leaving right now. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. Here's the second time Joseph dreams. Here's the second time Joseph is obedient. Here's the second time Joseph is silent. He still hasn't spoken a word. He hears God. He's even quicker this time. God speaks to him. He doesn't need to wait to see if... The first time, it's an easy confirmation. If Mary turns up pregnant, well, at least then you can go, okay, well... I was told this was coming. I can, I can believe it or not, but I was at least told this was coming. This is my confirmation. This time, no confirmation. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. He just wakes up and goes, okay, I'm going to trust it. This is a man whose spiritual maturity and the ability to hear the voice of the Spirit is skyrocketing, and particularly for a guy that never talks. We'd want this guy to write a book like yesterday, How to Hear from God and, and Nail It Every Time. New York Times bestseller. And Joseph is quiet and just takes his family, goes down into Egypt, which, by the way, is the wrong place to go in conventional wisdom. We don't, as the, as the dispersed people of God, run back into the place where our heritage was slavery. If you're a Jew, Egypt represents that moment of bondage and subjugation. As you go walk back into that willingly, there's a, there's a ton of stuff you could say to the psychology of what that means and the trust that Joseph must have to walk down into that situation. But his story's not over. You skip just a few verses where Herod is killing every baby age two and under in Jesus' birth town. By the way, have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus grows up without a single peer from his hometown because of this moment? What a weight that must be to know that if I hadn't been born, those kids would still be alive. Verse 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph. We're getting a recurrent theme here. I don't know if you caught this. Third time. He appears to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. He didn't wait. He got up right then. Third time for obedience. Now, this is... All of that set up to get back to a thought that I gave you early on in this. And this is why would it be outside of the realm of possibility to see the Jesus of the Gospels as he moves through the world as having been influenced by the way his earthly father moved through the world? We don't ever think about this because we don't think of Jesus being influenced by Joseph. But I'm here to present to you that I think he was. When Jesus gets to Cana in John 2... It's a wedding, but it's really the coming out party for Jesus. This is the moment where Jesus is going to be Jesus. He's going to show up and do a miracle. That's the Jesus we, remember, we think of, is the miracle-working Jesus. Up till this point, he's been, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased, Jesus. He's been going down into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, Jesus. He's been baptized in the Jordan River, Jesus. But he hasn't been healing Jesus or miracle-working Jesus. And he goes to a wedding party in Cana. And his mother comes up to him and says, they don't have any wine. And he says, woman, what is that to me? My time has not yet come. 
and you, I've talked with you about this 20 different ways. My time's not yet come. When it's my time, I'll do what I'm supposed to do. It's not my time. And Mary goes to the men in the house and says to them, whatever he says to you, do it. And I, I've, I've wrestled with that for years. I've tried to make that my own personal response to God. Paul, whatever he says to you, do it. Don't ask any questions. Don't go get 15 confirmations. Don't wait on all the answers to why. You don't need to explain it to everybody. Whatever he says to you, do it. And I'm getting better at it because as you practice, you get better at whatever he says to you, do it. I've missed it before, but I'm getting better at whatever he says to you, do it. And that's become the impetus to me in, in ministering to other believers is to say, look, you have the ability to hear from the Holy Spirit. You may not realize it and you may not be practicing it. And you might have grown so lazy on it that all you do is wait for another preacher to tell you or wait for somebody to write a book or wait to stumble across the right website. And all those things can be confirmations, but they can't be the word of the Lord for you. The word of the Lord for you is personal and intimate. And it wells up like a spring from inside, not just from the outside. Because if you only wait for words from the outside, you can be deceived. So you can wait for the words from the inside and whatever he says to you, do it. Mary says, whatever he says to you, do it. Where'd she get that idea? I think it's been their family mantra. I think it's been how they've lived their lives since her earthly husband lived that way. Whatever he says to us, we're going to do. He said, let's go to Egypt. Not only does Joseph not speak, Mary never complains. Mary doesn't complain that she's got to go pick up everything and go to Egypt. Mary doesn't complain that she's going to be in a foreign land and she's going to be a refugee. And she doesn't complain when it's time then to come back to the same place that wanted to kill her kid. She doesn't complain. And I'm not saying she learned it all from Joseph, but I am saying that if you live around someone long enough, I think stuff starts to rub off on you. And I present to you that what rubbed off on Jesus is that when he heard his heavenly father say something to him, he did it. That's how he watched his earthly father live. Dad taught him that one piece. We don't know what else he taught him. He was a carpenter's son, which in that world probably meant dad taught him carpentry. But dad also taught him that if God speaks to you, don't wait for anybody else to confirm it. Do it. And that's how Jesus lives. Woman, what is that to me? My time has not yet come. Somewhere between there and three verses later, his time comes. And the Holy Spirit speaks to him and he turns the water to wine. But even then, he doesn't do what we would do, which is give it a couple days so we don't look like we missed it. You know, because public perception is you, you want to, you know, you want to make sure people realize that you're listening to God. Jesus doesn't seem to care. There are so many moments in Jesus' life where things could go better for him if he would talk. He stands in front of Pontius Pilate. Pilate says to him, don't you know I have the power to let you go? Are you a king, yes or no? And the Bible says Jesus didn't open his mouth. And you go, all you got to do is, he could get out of this. He's so good that one time soldiers came to arrest him and they failed to arrest him. And when they got back to their officers, the officer said, where is he? And the men said, we didn't arrest him. And they said, why? And they said, because never has a man spoken like this man. I've never heard anybody talk like this. I'm a professional soldier who didn't do my job because when he opened his mouth, I forgot my job. There was just something about the way he talks. There was something about the way he moved. You, you don't know. You haven't seen him. When you see him, when you hear him, you'll know. 
And all Jesus has got to do is open his mouth. Pilate goes, you mean you're not going to talk to me? And the Bible says, and Jesus opened not his mouth like a lamb going to the slaughter. He kept his mouth shut. Why? Because obedience doesn't require you to have an answer. And so learn to obey in silence. But learn to obey. You see, don't substitute silence for obedience. Because you can take this the other way. As long as you just stay below the radar, it doesn't really matter what you do. The reality is, is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. He's speaking to all of you. It's not always the same thing, and it's not always life-changing. Sometimes we don't think it should be talked about unless it's, you know, pack up your bags and move across the world or, you know, change careers or whatever. But it's every day the Holy Spirit will speak to you. Little bitty ways. Learn to listen in silence. It doesn't mean you'll always be silent. There does come a time to speak. We know this because what we remember about Jesus is he's a talker. Some of the greatest things we see in Jesus in the Gospels are the times when he opens his mouth. But the times when he keeps them closed are almost inopportune to us. It would have been better for him to open his mouth, but he doesn't. I think Jesus' silence happens because he saw it happen in that earthly father. A silent obedience. I want to land you on one more verse from Luke 11. Two verses from one spot, Luke 11. And just try to give you an explanation for an otherwise kind of odd encounter that Jesus has right here. It's almost a throw-in encounter. It's in between um, the story of an unclean person receiving a demonic um, an exorcism. Jesus goes, if you cast out the devils and you don't replace it, they'll come back with seven stronger than themselves. And then he's going to go into the greater than Jonah passage, the sign of Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. Right in between that, he has, a, he has a verbal confrontation with a woman in the street in Luke chapter 11, verse 27. While he was saying this, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. But he said, and you know, that, you know it's going to be, he's got something to say about it if it opens with but. Because that's a rebuttal. I mean, he's going to rebut what she just said, and what she just said is pretty good. You know who's really blessed? The woman that bore you. This is like somebody talking good about your mom. You don't rebut that. Somebody says something good about your mom, you go, amen. Unless you're a total jerk. He's not going to rebut it being about his mom. But watch this. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And so Jesus takes the compliment of blessed is the woman that, that bore this baby. Blessed is the woman who nursed this child. Physical proximity. Boy, she's really blessed. She physically got to touch the, this Jesus. And Jesus says, no, true blessing is not found in physically touching Jesus. True blessing are those who hear God speak, and they obey the voice of God. Okay, why is that important? Because you get, you get in on this blessing. It, imagine if the woman had said, blessed is the woman that bore this baby and that nursed him. And Jesus went, amen. It would be Jesus applying the seal of approval to physical proximity to Jesus, greatest blessing you can have. Well, you're short on luck, because you're not going to get physical proximity to Jesus, but you do get the chance to have a greater blessing than Mary. 
And so Jesus says, you know what would be even better than the blessing my mom had in having me is the blessing you all get in listening to what is said and then going out and doing it. Is obedience important, even under grace? (laughs) You bet it is. Try living your walk with Christ without obedience. Obedience is hearing what he says and then doing it. I say to you, silent obedience is where it all starts. It's not always that you have to have a response. It's not always that it creates a sermon. It's not always that you have to win the argument. It's that you hear the voice of God and you go do what it is that he tells you to do. And the reason that's important, if it isn't obvious, is you never know when your silent obedience changes the trajectory of not just your life, but somebody else. If Joseph doesn't have silent obedience, I'll leave you with this thought. This is just, this flabbergasts me. I was thinking about this this week. God's got this whole thing worked out. He's going to show up. Mary's going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. He's going to protect baby Jesus. This is my beloved son. Whom I'm... There's one guy in this story that can screw the whole thing up. Joseph. And he's got legal, theological right to screw it up. Man, we got to pick the right. We got to pick the right one. Not only does he have to be in the lineage of David, not only does she have to be in the lineage of David, but I got to work on this heart. I need somebody who obeys, who does what they're told to do because we're one left turn from this whole thing being off. You don't know how big your obedience. This isn't meant to scare us. This is meant to cause us to just listen to the sound of the Spirit and say, obedience is huge. Okay, so you may not give a rip if God ever says anything to you or does anything in your life. That's possible. Somebody watching, a lot of people that way. I just want to make heaven my home. I can't tell you how many Christians I've heard say that. I just want to make heaven my home. Their whole Christianity is just not going to hell and getting to heaven. Even if that means that the things they do create pockets of hell for other people, well, you know what? At the end, everybody's got to take care of his own salvation, right? It's a terrible attitude. It's shared by a lot of people in the church who really only think of Christianity as a ticket to miss hell and get to heaven. As long as it gets stamped and you get to go on the right train when you're dead, then everything is good. And I say to you that that's not the, I don't think that's the Jesus style at all. Because every little obedience that you have could make a difference on the person to your right and the person to your left. And that's worth really, really paying attention when the quote-unquote angel visits. And so first response should be no response. Silent obedience. Start there. Listen to the Spirit. You don't have to come up with a pithy statement. You don't have to change it over into a Facebook post. It doesn't have to become part of your, uh, you know, a video for your subs. Just relax. Hear the Spirit. Move. If it never translates into a sermon, a book, a song, (laughs) you never get to post about it, that's okay too. I like what Eugene Peterson said. Faith is a long obedience in the same direction. That's pretty good. Long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience starts by just hearing his voice. Silent obedience. Hear, do.
Let's pray. God, you are good. You are good. Thank you. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for this little chance that you've carved out in the universe for a few people to come together and talk about Jesus. I'm humbled at how you've done it. I'm not even sure why you've done it, but I'm trying to just have a silent obedience. Thank you that you have done this and that you continue to do this. Father, I pray that we have helped today to sort out some things in the heads and the hearts of people in this room and the people who will listen and watch. Maybe they've been hearing from you and they don't know what to do. And maybe they did, but they don't know if they did correctly. Help us to relax as we listen to the sound of the Spirit. May we start a default position of silence and go from there. It's obvious we have a lot to learn from Jesus. But Lord, we have a lot to learn from these other characters as well. Maybe we learned something from Joseph today. Apply it. As we apply it in our lives, may you pour the water of your spirit upon it. So it brings forth fruit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.